Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. Hello, my friends. Oh, this is such a wonderful episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast. Uh, today, we have Jessica Greger and two of her fellow physician colleagues, and this is just going to be such an amazing episode, so I hope you all tune in. Uh, so Jessica obtained her Bachelor of Science in Speech and Hearing Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2008, and her Master of Science in Speech Pathology at Rush University in Chicago, Illinois in 2010. Over her career, Jessica has worked in a variety of medical settings at prestigious healthcare systems and the VA. She holds her board certification in Adult Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders, or BCSS, through the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders, ABSSD, since 2016. And served as the ABSSD and served on the ABSSD mentorship committee from 2018 to 2020. Jessica is currently a mentor for the MedSLP education program. She's been faculty of the Florida Dysphagia Institute and an international trainer of the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program since 2019. Jessica is presently the oncology swallowing specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona, and the Department of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. She has a strong passion for the field of swallowing diagnostics and intervention, as well as multidisciplinary collaboration for optimal patient care. Jessica has established a multidisciplinary dysphagia board, as well as a multidisciplinary swallowing clinic with her ENT and GI partners. Her primary research interest is the oropharyngeal and esophageal interplay. We are also joined by Dr. Will Carley. He's a laryngologist who works at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. He grew up in upstate New York and completed his undergraduate education at the University of Rochester. After completing his otolaryngology residency at New York Eye and Ear Infirmary, he went on to complete a fellowship in laryngology at OHSU. His practice involves all aspects of airway, voice, laryngeal cancer, and dysphagia. And last but not least, we are also joined by Dr. Alon Khan. He is a gastroenterologist specializing in caring for patients with esophageal disorders with a particular expertise and clinical focus in Barrett's esophagus and esophageal cancer. He also cares for patients with complex and refractory esophageal strictures, utilizing novel techniques, and directs the esophageal self-dilation program in Arizona. So thank you all three of you for being here. I am so grateful for everything you share in this episode. I know this is going to bring tremendous value to so many SLPs, so many programs across the country. So thank you. Thank you again. And I hope you all love this episode. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. 
and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. And I just wanted to do a quick reminder that every single episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast comes with show notes. Uh, We have a wonderful support team here that goes through and writes the show notes for you, uh, writes the timestamps, all the things you need. So if you don't want to listen to the whole thing or if there's a reference that you missed or you want to go back and catch something again, Download those show notes at swallowyourpridepodcast.com. We have them for every single episode. We also have the transcription there. So I just wanted to remind you of that uh, so that you can catch up with the Swallow Your Pride podcast, whichever way is best for you. All right. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yes. We have a wonderful panel discussion tonight. I'm so excited for this episode. We've been planning it for quite some time. And Jessica, I know a lot of people are familiar with you. I will let you say a little, a few words about yourself and explain why we're here and introduce the gentleman. Sure, sure. Well, first and foremost, I'm Jessica Greger. I'm a medical speech pathologist. I'm currently employed at Mayo Clinic and I have the pleasure of working with an awesome laryngologist, Dr. Will Carley and an awesome esophagologist, Dr. Alon Khan, who are joining me here. We are talking about uh, multidisciplinary collaboration for swallowing and swallowing problems, swallowing impairments. So for all different types of dysphagia, different swallowing complaints, how it's best practice really to try and have a, a team discussing it and even ideal setting of having everybody in one place, uh, an integrated diagnostic uh, encounter, if you will, in one day with a whole plan of care made because of great collaboration with the team members. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Um, you want to give a little background about who you are, Jess? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. So I'm from Chicagoland and I went to U of I in Urbana-Champaign for my undergrad speech and hearing science and then went on to Rush and wanted to do a medical speech pathology graduate program. And I'm so glad I did. It was great. Through that experience, I had a lot of medical externships and I love the VA. So I got in there for my fellowship down in Florida and worked there for several years. And then also moved down further Florida, went to uh, Cleveland Clinic there, worked there in, in, in the Cleveland Clinic system in South Florida. And then most recently have moved to Arizona and I'm in the Mayo Clinic system here. And I would say that I've been working for almost 15 years, and the oncology population certainly has my heart. I love head and neck cancer. I started and also participated in several multidisciplinary head and neck cancer programs, like preventative programs and following them on like surveillance care pathways. They already have something like that established here, and it's fantastic. And so we are, uh, I, I, currently 
fully integrated in that, but also get the pleasure of seeing different swallowing problems that are largely like reflux-based or GI issues, rheumatologic problems, uh, autoimmune conditions, and pulmonary diseases. Uh, we kind of have a unique system here at Mayo where speech pathology is separated into two groups, otolaryngology and neurology. And so all the neuro-based problems really and inpatient are with that group, whereas we see more of the cancer and the other populations that I just described. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Dr. Khan? Oh, uh, yeah. So thank you very much for having me. Uh, so I'm a gastroenterologist. I work here at the Mayo Clinic. I'm originally from Israel, but lived mostly on the East Coast growing up and uh, did my medical school at University of Arizona and all of my training at Mayo Clinic and stayed here and plan to do so long term. Uh, I specialize in esophageal disorders with a particular focus in Barrett's esophagus and complex esophageal strictures, but also see a full spectrum of esophageal disorders in my practice here and uh, have really enjoyed the opportunity to collaborate uh, my whole career with uh, ENT and speech therapy, but really enjoyed taking that to the next level lately uh, with this group. Awesome. That was that was a good one, Alon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is not your first time describing yourself. <laughs> uh, well, my name is Will Carley. I am a laryngologist at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Been here for three and a half years, just about at this point. I grew up in upstate New York. College there. Lived in Boston. What part? Uh, Albany. Are you from there as well? Okay. I'm from Binghamton. Originally. Oh, Binghamton. All right. I've heard about you guys. Where'd you go to, where, where'd you go to college? I went to Buffalo for undergrad. And okay. I went to University of Rochester. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we got some people in common. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and after that, I said that wasn't cold enough. So I went to Boston for a year and then I did most of my training in New York City. So uh, med school was at Albert Einstein. Residency was at New York Pioneer and then did a year fellowship in laryngology over at OHSU. And then have been here ever since. And in terms of a focus, I kind of pride myself on taking care of all the different aspects of laryngology. So airway, swallow, voice, cancer, um, small things from vocal full polyps to big things like total laryngectomies. Um, I like the variety of everything. Awesome. All right. Thank you. All right. So where should we start, Jess? What are we going to talk about? Okay. I think just starting off with, okay, we clearly know I'm a swallow nerd, right? Okay. And I, I have a huge passion for dysphagia, all things swallowing. I want to just briefly touch on kind of what has inspired me to start a multidisciplinary board and clinic here at Mayo Clinic. Um, I think really, I mean, you, you always talk about being on dysphagia island when you're describing so many speech pathologists who are in the medical field and they're, they're doing it all by themselves. And, you know, with depending on the facility or the location, they are not fortunate enough to have, you know, an OT, or, I'm sorry, an ENT or a GI doctor on site with them, collaborative, um, or even in the same city. And that's really tough. But there are a couple cases that really stuck with me where I was sitting there going, okay, this would just be so much better care if I literally had my ENT and GI in this room with me and just taking care of this patient. But it, it, a lot of times people think that a multidisciplinary dysphagia clinic is meant for just complex cases. And it's not. It's, I'm going to give two examples. So it can be from as simple as a patient who ultimately, based on all the workup that's done, a cricopharyngeal prominence or bar that's really obstructive and bothering the patient. They're sensate to it and it's not allowing the food and liquid to pass through, right? 
it's not that easy just to be like, okay, yeah, like we're going to do something about it. Really, you should never touch the PES until you know what the status is of the esophageal clearance. So motility and their GERD status. And so involving GI is really important. So that's a simple case right there of just figuring that out, talking about it and figuring out the best plan if that's the right move for the patient. And then something more complex, like I had a patient who was six months out from a base of skull resection. His entire right vagal nerve was just out on the whole right side. So if you can imagine, you know, soft palates out on that side, pharynx, vocal cord out on that side, UES dysfunction, mm, insane dysmotility, and then LES dysfunction. And, you know, they're presenting in my office after I've done a fluoro study, like, what's what's the deal? And, you know, having them, I know what they're in for. They're in for months of waiting to see a GI, waiting to see an ENT, probably not at the same time. So one staggered after the other. And they're going to get told very specific things from their lane. And no one's talking. I'm not able to then, like, catch up and talk with these people. And they may be in network or they might be within my facility or my system or they may not be. And uh, that patient, what would they benefit from? Gosh, I mean, sure, I know what I can get started for for behavioral swallow intervention. But I really would want to know what does the ENT think about pharyngopasty for the palate, laryngoplasty, like medialization for the vocal cord? What is my, what does he think about the cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction? What does the GI think about his motility status and the LES and UES dysfunction? Cause they're so closely related. We just need a whole big discussion in one room after we've done some nice workup and we can kind of sort that out from there and save the patient a ton of time and frustration. Yes. So was this, was this just an idea that you thought of? Have you, have you been a part of other models? I guess tell me how this all transpired. Sure. Very good question. This is not a new concept and I am not in any way, shape or form wanting to take credit for anything other than I'm just excited I started something here. But this was something I sought mentorship on years ago. It actually started, started with Tom France. I'm going to totally bent, do terrible with his name, but it's Francisini, Tom Francisini. And he was somewhere in the Midwest and he had started a series of swallowing and reflux clinics with his GI doctor and his ENT. And I thought that was fascinating because I've always been fascinated by GERD and reflux. And so I picked his brain a little bit, but then he had, you know, given me some other pathways to follow in terms of um, mentorship. And I came upon Heather Starmer, one of the greatest speech pathologists clinically. She's just fantastic. And she's at uh, Stanford. And so um, she works with the GI and ENT and they've been doing it for a couple of years now. And she's published a nice paper on it, which is one of my game-changing papers that you asked about for this podcast. And uh, yeah, so we've, we've interviewed actually the GI, Dr. Clark, from that group on our multidisciplinary dysphagia board. And just to pick his brain and learn more. And Heather's been you know, integral for uh, mentorship in that arena. So yeah, it's not a new concept. I also added a paper that I wanted the listeners to take a look at. It's from the Journal of Dysphagia, I believe 1989. It's got Jerry Logeman on it. It also has, and I just want to make sure I got it. They've got ENT, GI, neuro, psych, and rehab medicine on there, along with uh, Bronwyn Jones, the radiologist. And they all get a case to look at, and it's a lot of still fluoros, and then they discuss. And it's truly the same conversations that we still have 
30 some years later and multidisciplinary care is still not happening. And it's not, it, I mean, we know that in medicine, team care is really where it's going and it should be no different for swallowing. I mean, we know how complex swallow is. The team should be just as complex. We need the collaboration of the specialists. So tell me how you landed with this dream team. Were you just like, hey, do you want to be on my team? How did this all transpire? So uh, when I got hired, the, the team knew uh, Dr. Carly was part of the team, the laryngology team that did hire me. And he knew of my uh, desire to move forward with that. So we put together a meeting with we actually have esophagologists here. We have a, a whole group of esophagologists. They even have a fellowship for um, training in esophagology. And so I met with Dr. Vila, Dr. Khan, and a few others from that group. And they were like, I mean, I don't want to speak for Dr. Khan. I'll let him tell you. But he was like, yes, this is what we should be doing for every dysphagic patient. So actually, I would like, uh, Al, would please share your thoughts on that and then Will too. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I love the way you describe this. I think we've all on our own had this experience. Uh, and I like to explain to my fellows, uh, and, and I've certainly experienced this, that, you know, patients don't understand who knows what, right? And so I like to explain to patients and, of course, to my trainees that the speech pathologists are really the experts in the swallow mechanism, especially in this region. And they, they presume that we know everything, that we are trained in the entire continuum of swallowing, but that just isn't the case, right? And so I've always really valued that collaboration. When I was in training, I, I sought out opportunities to spend time with speech pathologists uh, here and also in Rochester when I spent time up there at the Mayo Clinic uh, and saw that multidisciplinary collaboration happening. And I think that was always modeled for me. So for me, it was always really important. Um, but I think you came in with the enthusiasm for this particular initiative uh, and that's sometimes what you need. You just need the right ingredients and the people to to set it off. Uh, and so when we met and talked about it, I, I think it was a natural fit for me uh, because I really enjoy that process of collaboration. So, but I think it's the way you've described it is absolutely critical to getting the best outcomes. Thanks. Um, I would say before Jessica got here that Alon and myself already had a lot of collaboration, but it just wasn't a formalized thing. Um, so it was an ad hoc emails, phone calls, Hiking, meeting up, <laughs> hiking, yeah, camping, yeah, <laughs> um, and as as need type thing. But it's nice to have a more formal process. Um, there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely reasons why you don't see it spread across different organizations. Um, there's definitely challenges with it. Some of those being that it's it's hard to pick out which patients would be appropriate to be seen by both. Some obviously have just very straightforward ENT problem or very straightforward GI problem and be quote unquote waste of the other person's time to see that patient. And a lot of times it's hard to determine that based off of the records that are provided to you um, and not having staff that's able to triage and, and look through that. So that's one of the biggest components of it. Um, and apart from that, it, it may actually end up just taking more time to get everyone scheduled together and not be able to see quite as many patients, but to provide better care and not every system has that capability. So yeah. Can you discuss sort of the nuances of the team? So is it, you know, do you guys meet every Thursday at three or, and, and is there, you know, like you said, it's difficult to decipher which patients meet the requirements for the entire team. So sort of what does that look like? We've met a lot about it. We've been meeting virtually uh, for monthly complex dysphagia case discussions. So like the dysphagia board aspect of just, hey, here's a case that I saw. What does everybody think? And then we can really talk about it and move forward with the patient's plan because we're not seeing these people actively all the time for a clinic. 
Uh, we've been meeting for almost a year doing that. And we're continuing to. And then part of what we see at the clinic, any follow-up from those additional evaluations, we would discuss at those meetings as well. But right now, we're just starting out slow. We're we're just trying to kind of play with some things because this is all very new to us and take a look at different criteria that we would want to have the patient meet before having them come in, keeping it to a small amount each day uh, or each clinic day so that we can uh, take our time with it and really kind of learn, okay, what went well, what didn't go well, and then tweak it for the next time. Cool. Yeah. My experience with these multidisciplinary collaborations, because I've, you know, my, one of the first things I did when I started at, at Mayo Clinic was to, to start a collaboration with the foregut surgery team. And, and this is uh, taking a similar path is that, you know, you start out with a meeting and you just kind of have to show the value and it takes time for people to buy in and to start sort of uh, uh, incorporating this into their thinking for how they take care of patients. So initially when I started that meeting, we had sort of poor attendance, people wouldn't send cases, I would be the one driving driving the ship. Um, and I think I think Jessica has really been that person for us. But over time, that meeting has now grown. And now the thoracic surgeons want to come and now the radiologists want to come. And now the fellows want to come. And now there's so many now there's so many cases to review, we can't even get through them in a meeting. Uh, and I don't even get a chance to submit my own cases anymore. So it's great to see that grow uh, over time. And that's taken three years to get to that point. So I think, like Jessica said, uh, we've started this. We've already seen a lot of enthusiasm from people, and I think it will just organically grow as we continue to to drive it in the direction it needs to go. That's great. I was just going to add that in terms of what we're aiming for currently with our with our dysphagia clinic is processes that either are distinctly involving both GI and ENT input. So having someone that has rip roaring GERD and a CP bar, for example, we'd need input from both. But I think that one aspect that isn't always sold when trying to start a clinic like this is that it's also good for patients where you're suspecting based on the outside records that you're not going to find a succinct diagnosis for them, that you're not going to have that one radiologic finding saying, oh, this is the cause of your symptoms and having a more holistic approach saying, listen, these are the different ENT aspects that could be playing into your symptoms. These are the different GI aspects. These are the things that we can rule out. And as a team, we can come to you with with these recommendations. Yeah, I love that because I feel like that's the mystery of what we do a lot of times, Jess. It's it's like, well, crap, This is there's a lot going on here. Where do we start? You know, what we're yeah. Well, and a lot of a lot of the times speech pathologists, I mean, I found before not talking about this clinic, but I'm literally trying to piece together and be the detective for the patient. And I'm not a physician at, at all, but I am I'm I'm a swallowing specialist. And I, I at least know what I know and want to get them to the right person and have suspicions and thoughts that I would love to pick the doctor's brain about and get their input and learn. It's a I think that's the other part of this is that the learning experience. I, I love the learning experience. I mean, even from our clinic experiences thus far, I walk away being like, oh, my God, I just felt so enriched and one other cool part is that they, the the doctors you work with, get a, a taste, a little bit more of a different idea about what you do and what your your you know your interactions are like with the patient, and vice versa. You know, sitting in with Dr. Carly as he did his intake after discussing the case with me, I'm in the room, and then he's doing the scope, we're moving into TNE, and 
watching him go through that, you just you definitely have a new perspective, a different appreciation. And you're like, oh, it's just really nice to be a part of that. And then with Alan, you know, he's doing his GI evaluation. And then we talk. All three of us are talking the entire time. It's, you know, a handoff and then they come back with that information and we regroup and like, where are we going to go from here? And there, sometimes we agree and sometimes we don't agree, but it's those disagreements that you can talk it out in a very healthy, positive way and really just gain perspective. Al, well, what do you think about that? Well, I think that's such an important point and, uh, think about what that's like for the patient. So when, when your care team disagrees, in silos, the patient's stuck in the middle, right? They're the one holding the ball and they're feeling frustrated because they're getting different messages from everyone. So why don't we take them out of the equation for a second? Obviously still very much focused on them as the, the most important thing in the room, but let's us have the discussion between each other and come to some understanding or consensus, even if there is disagreement about how to move forward. Then you turn to your side and go, hey, you know, patient, this is what we've decided to be best for you. And they get to be a part of that. I think that's really the crux of the whole thing because disagreements are, are common in medicine. Uncertainty is common in medicine. And so, uh, but, but leaving that on the patient to kind of go from office to office, that's really where patients, I think, get the most frustrated. Yeah. yeah I love that. I feel like that, I mean, that's the definition of evidence-based practice is, you know, sort of getting everybody all together to decide what might, you know, be the best approach. But yeah, I, I just think of these patients that, you know, may have taken a recommendation from from Will and then may have taken a recommendation from Jessica and they may not have jived and then the patient's lost and still not getting better, you know. So I think this collaboration is just, it's so wonderful for everybody, so. I also think it enhances the quality. I think it enhances the quality of your referrals too. Like if you understand what the other people do, you might think of them when you see patients in a different light, think of things they can do that you didn't realize they could do. And and so I think that just enhances the practice altogether. Yeah. Also too, there's something to be said about specialists, like truly specialists. So, you know, Alan has dedicated most of his practice to esophagology, right? And he is a specialist in that. And so same with Will, he's a fellowship trained laryngologist. And something that I felt was really interesting that Will shared with me that I've learned through, you know, our time together is that a lot of speech pathologists assume that larynx or that ENTs 100% understand swallowing no. like the back of their hand. No. And yeah. they do. And, yeah. <laughs> and they also, as Will has so kindly informed me, that they also many don't care. Yes. Will, please carry on what you were talking about. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. No, it's just one of those aspects of the field, which is definitely within our realm that doesn't have a lot of interest in it. It, it probably is driven from a couple different things, but one of them is that we're surgeons and for better or worse, a lot of swallow issues just aren't surgical problems. Um, so for that reason, a lot of ENTs just are not drawn to it. Yeah. And it's complex. It's, it's hard to understand. So it's not something you can just easily follow. Yeah. And I would say a similar dynamic plays out in GI where, you know, uh, if, if there's no stricture, if, if, you know, if the basic things are, are looking normal, people, people aren't sure what to do next. And, and it's the same sort of dynamic. And, and that's heartbreaking as a speech pathologist who's loves swallowing and, and, but also at the same time, I'm really excited because like I said, I found two doctors who are interested and want to participate in this. You know, it's, they don't get any other gain from it than, truly delivering the best patient care. I mean, that's really what it's all about is the patient. Yeah. When I was working last in Buffalo, there was two different ENT groups that they wanted us to refer patients to. 
and neither of them had a laryngologist. And one, this other group, laryngologist reached out to me and I was like, yes, oh my gosh. And I was so excited, like that we spoke each other's language. And, but the facility was mad because they didn't want me sending them to this guy because he was not in network with the other facilities. So I had to really, I had to argue and advocate and bust my butt to, for them to be able to send the patients there. Cause that was definitely what was best for them. You know, and I was like, we can send them to the guys in your group, but we're not going to get any answers. So. Yeah. I think it can be a model where, where people get excited about it too. Cause I, I, I don't necessarily think that people don't want to not know. Right. So when I say what I say before, I think there may not be a level of interest sometimes, but I think really more a lack of training and just not familiarity with some of the complex cases we see. So I think if we can be the leaders and show that through collaboration, you can learn, uh, maybe other GIs, other ENTs, other, other speech pathologists might be more interested in this kind of a, a model or these disorders. Yes, definitely. Something else too is that, for example, speech pathologist does a video fluoroscopic swallow study. And we can clearly see, and we're looking at esophageal clearance, that there is a tremendous amount of retention and that is not a straight collapse tube, anatomic abnormalities up the wazoo, right? Nothing, Something's not right. And so refer to GI, right? And then you get a reading back pH study negative, monometry negative, you know, unremarkable, normal. And, you know, you're, you're just very confused uh, as to why. And so I think the idea, too, is that with this team, you're able to talk about these nuances with testing because there is no perfect test. And, right, I mean, Al, was there anything you wanted to add with that? No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think I've learned that when uh, the tests are not lining up, at least when I was working more in a siloed environment, that that was the time I needed to reach out to someone else who understood the swallow mechanism differently from me. Uh, and that doesn't always work. There isn't, as as Will said earlier, there isn't always a smoking gun. But uh, there have definitely been cases, uh, recent cases I can recall, uh, in which I felt like there was something more uh, to the to the issue, to the pathology that was going on, and and especially in behavioral cases. You know, where, where people are, I can tell there's a, there's a fear of swallowing where I think there can be a lot of benefit to having a collaboration with speech pathology. And, and so I think that's just one example recently where just because the testing is normal, uh, doesn't mean that either side is normal, right? It's, it's important to validate the patient's complaints or concerns, number one. And then number two, depending on what the tests are showing, you know, talking about it and, and, and as the specialists of each study really are in test, filling in the gaps with that discussion when something's not lining up. Because clearly there's something wrong. We're just not catching it. And we need to be able to figure that out. And who better than this group of people? Okay. So the structure of the, the multidisciplinary swallow clinic that we have so far, uh, what we found was best is very similar to the way that Heather Starmer has it structured at the um, Stanford. And so the patient comes in for a fluoro study. We do that up front. That's the very first thing we do. We're able to see the entire swallowing continuum under x-ray. So lips all the way through LES. And we have a very nice idea of what's functioning well and what's not when it comes to just overall, this is your oral route. How efficient is it? How safe is it? And then Moving from that point, I collaborate with Dr. Carley on what was the status of that fluoro study. We review the video clips together. Then Will and I go into the room with the patient, and he does flexible laryngoscopy and esophagoscopy and does his own intake as well, 
Then after that, we talk about it. We do a handoff with Alan. Then Dr. Khan sees that patient um, for a consultation. And after that, the, we have a final discussion and lay out a plan for the patient. Um, and also wrap, have a wrap up discussion. But, you know, if further testing is indicated, we have a plan for that. We have a set time schedule that we'd like to get that done by. And then we are able to talk about those results at our dysphagia board that we hold. And then, yeah, I mean, if the patient walks away, we have very satisfied patients so far. It's, it's been exciting. I mean, they love that they were a part of like, you know, some, some, like the pioneer beginning of this, uh, taking off. So they were very enthusiastic patients. It was great. And in terms of patient selection, you know, that's something we candidly kind of uh, wrestled with in the beginning. How do we, just like Will said earlier, we don't want to bring in patients with really straightforward, simple problems that could be addressed, you know, by one of us very clearly. So, you know, we settled on, uh, we, we want this to be a, a, at least at first a dysphagia clinic. And so dysphagia was the thing we were after. And just simply someone who had been referred uh, with dysphagia who had had a negative upper endoscopy. So there wasn't just an obvious, you know, Schatzky ring or, or peptic stricture or erosive esophagitis or, you know, some other obvious uh, cause of their dysphagia. And, and I think that's that's actually quite simply where we settled. And I think so far it's been successful in identifying people who would benefit from that. But, you know, we'll continue to refine that. Do you guys have like a waiting list or is it hard to get into this team? How does that work? We, yes, we've got, uh, we've got a nice waiting list and we've got, uh, you know, we've got a waiting list for all of our future planned clinic days. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And you mentioned you might bring in other professionals too. Is that on the radar you think? Is there, is there parts you think that are missing or? No, yes, we're very welcome to having anybody else who would like to join. But in terms of the actual structure so far of just the workup for the clinic day, I think we're good. Um, but when we have certain cases that would involve, you know, benefit from hearing from a rheumatologist or a neurologist, like for an inclusion body myositis case that we're curious about, I mean, then we would definitely invite them and have them come on. So that would, that would be, a, that would be great. I know G, GI too has a psychologist, right? Yeah, we do. We have a GI psychologist on staff who specializes in, uh, in, of course, these GI patients that would benefit from uh, behavioral psychology uh, treatment. And I think the board is the right place for that, right? The clinic, you, you don't want to crowd the clinic, right? It's already hard enough to stagger our schedules and get enough people into the room who need to be there. But the board is a great place to bring in, just like Jessica said, bringing in other specialists, uh, radiology to review complicated uh, studies, uh, surgeons to talk about uh, cases that might involve them. That's a great place because, you know, uh, that's that's at a time, it's at the noon hour and, and you could invite other people. Are there any, would you guys be willing to share any cases or is there any patients that, you know, sort of you, you brought to the team and came up with a consensus that was not what you originally thought? Or I would just love to sort of hear hear this in action. Okay. Yes. Uh, there was an interesting case. There was a patient with a history of a brainstem stroke and he had had a lot of failed swallow therapies and he was G2 dependent. And all he wanted to do was, was have a little bit of snack, a little pleasure snack, but he kept getting recurrent pneumonia and there was, he then, but he's been strict NPO. And so, uh, he kept getting hospitalized, but he would mention that he was vomiting. And it would come up while laying down. So we didn't know whether he was aspirating his reflux because he's been MPO or his gastric tube feeds. And so long story short, when I did the fluoro study, I saw that he had like a terribly dysfunctional cricopharyngeus muscle and it was just so tight. And there was a discussion about like 
when I reviewed the case with Will, should we do anything to that muscle? Because there's nothing else that I could do for him, fringely speaking, because there's so many years post and he just wasn't a good candidate for behavioral intervention. And then we dropped down and looked on the fluoro study. He had a huge hiatal hernia and his esophageal clearance was very poor, tons of retention, tons of backflow. And so we had talked with uh, Alan who also was talking with general surgery, I believe, to figure out, do we do something about that before we touch the PES? And so that was an interesting case. We don't know what happened. It was out of our hands yeah, after that. Yeah. Yeah. So this was actually a great one because I, I connected to both of my multidisciplinary networks, right? I had the one with, with uh, you both. And then I actually reached out to uh, colleagues in, in the foregut surgery team. And that's my other multidisciplinary network. Uh, and so it was, it was a great case because he has very well identified, uh, oropharyngeal pathology and very well identified esophageal pathology. And the question was, what do we do about all this? Is there something we can, we can fix? Uh, and then in talking to the patient, uh, and his wife, it was clear that, uh, two of, he had two episodes of hospitalization for pneumonia. One was when he had just reintroduced oral feeding and after a prolonged period of NPO status. And then the other was during an episode of sudden vomiting, which, which, which was not regurgitation, but was truly vomiting like you would get from gastroenteritis. And the, other than those two episodes, there were no other times where he was hospitalized. Uh, and furthermore, hadn't really been having GERD symptoms, uh, despite the sort of incidental, uh, detection of this hernia. So, uh, in talking to the patient and the sort of risk benefit of proceeding with a surgical evaluation, uh, and talking to surgery about his overall health status, it just did not seem, uh, like we would likely make a significant impact on him and his likelihood of having rehospitalization. So I think at this time, they were very comfortable with, with watching and seeing if that occurs again. Awesome. There you go. Yeah. Uh, my favorite collaboration with Alon was at this point, like two years ago or something like that. You know what case I'm going to talk about probably. <laughs> uh, there was this person who had ter- terrible story growing up. She had ingested some lye or a smaller caustic agent and had trashed her esophagus and underwent as a child, underwent a, a total esophagectomy and had reconstruction decades ago with her small intestine odd surgery, multiple surgeries that not current standard practice in her new esophagus was connected to the side of her pharynx. And she was having issues now where when she would eat um, occasionally, she would get things stuck in her neck and it would become extremely painful. So she came to me because her surgeons were back when she was a child, were all retired at this point. And I didn't know if we'd be able to find the esophagus so I got Alon involved, went to her to the OR, and she had also previously seen a different GI, and they couldn't get into the esophagus. They couldn't find it anywhere. Um, so we did a combo where we got a direct laryngoscopy to basically stare at where we knew there was going to be an esophagus. And then Alon got his scope and balloon dilated and got in there and then saw the weirdest esophagus I've ever seen in my entire life, uh, which is also I wanted him there. And we dilate a lot of different spots. And we did not help her at all. <laughs> we didn't do anything. It didn't help her at all, which is super sad. But then I was like, well, this is all we can do for you surgically, but let's try a calcium channel blocker because it sounds like you're having spasming of like your small intestine and your neck. And she's been on that for two years now and she has no symptoms on that medication. She it's loves it. Helper. Oh yeah. But it wasn't surgery, which is strange. Yeah. yeah. Ruling things out can be very helpful. Did you guys do a rendezvous procedure for mm-hmm. that? Okay. Oh, she doesn't have a G2. Okay. She gets a little nutrition by mouth. The entry point from her for her neck into her neoesophagus is like at a ninety degree angle off to the yep. side of her pharynx. Yikes! So, 
So getting in and there, multiple was, other 90 degrees going down to her stomach. Yeah, it was a it was a very interesting wow. case. One of the, one of the mm-hmm. strangest anatomies I've encountered. <laughs> yep. Yep. So thanks to awesome. Will for bringing me into that. That was a lot of yeah. that was fun. Yeah, we fixed her with the pill. But I think <laughs> Teresa, back to the multidisciplinary clinic cases though that we've had. Just some, they're not that, some of the more interesting discussions really are, may not be that complex of cases. It's like, this patient's experiencing globus. Is it the hiatal hernia? Or, you know, the, here's the pill. The pills swallowed through that. The pill didn't even get hung up in the hiatal hernia, but they're like, the pill's right here. And the scope from ENT is negative. And so what is it that the patients, you know, and so we talk about that because Globus is so elusive. Awesome. One of the things that Alon is most helpful for in this multidisciplinary approach is to know which specific GI testing you should order. Because so many times in ENT, I have ideas about what's best. And honestly, I didn't have the best understanding of their testing before I started working here and learning from Alon. But it, even still now, I still very much value his input as to what is going to be the highest yield and what we should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It can be somewhat mystical. I mean, even in our field, we have a lot of, you know, every GI conference has a session on, you know, what GERD testing should you order for what patient? And so it continues to be a difficult thing. Uh, and so I'm glad that that's been useful for our patients. I think one lesson that uh, Jessica and I talk about often is if you have a strong suspicion that a patient has GERD based on your swallow evaluation, based on the symptoms they're presenting with, your your symptom scores, that's really important. But we also have to know where the rubber meets the road. So if the patient has has tried PPI therapy, you know, six times before they saw you, like many times they have, and they've not had even one iota of benefit, then the only other thing we have to offer them is anti-reflux surgery. And the decision about pursuing an anti-reflux surgery is very complex and involves me and also involves the surgeons and involves the rest of the team. But it's important to note that even if you have a positive pH test in a patient with an extra esophageal symptom like throat clearing or globus, this is not my opinion, but the data suggests that your likelihood of improving their condition with more aggressive anti-reflux measures is not good. It's, you know, if a patient looks at me and says, okay, how likely is it I wake up from my fund application with no globus? I I can't tell them it's very likely. Uh, And so I think it's really important that we assess it we objectively determine what's going on. We give them that understanding, but then also communicate to them that, you know, this may be unrelated. This may be partially related and we can't necessarily give them certainty about that. So I think that's one place where those discussions become really helpful to at least give them understanding, even if we can't tell them exactly what will yeah. happen. I've had a lot of people come in who have had Nissen fund implications outside of here years ago, whatever. And a lot of the disappointment of, well, I thought after I'd have the surgery, I wouldn't, I have so much phlegm and constantly clearing my throat and I'm chronic coughing. And um, I feel like something's stuck all the time. And um, now too, sometimes they're too tight and the solids are not actually emptying well through their soft or through the LES. And so that's even adding to the problem. And yeah, the, the Nissens don't necessarily solve those problems. It's kind of like the damage has been done. And so SLPs can definitely have a great role in, in educating realistic expectations when it comes to that. Thank you for clarifying that one. Cause I think that's something that SLPs struggle with too, is like, where is our role? Where does our role end and where does the role begin with you? Because I think, you know, a lot of times we would just say send for a GI consult or send for a GI workup, but then I would always get calls like, well, what exactly are you looking for? What exact, what test do you want? And like, I don't think that's my job. Like, (laughs) so I think thank you for clarifying that because like you said, it's, it's tough and there's a lot of variables that go into deciding what is the best test for the patient. Yeah. And I think you can communicate that, you know, I, I know this patient, 
has reflux. I think this patient has reflux, but you're the expert in what tests to order. And it would be really helpful if you can help me delineate, do they have reflux? How much do they have? And, and how can it be best controlled? Thank you. Definitely. Cool. Awesome. Anything else? Anything else we didn't cover? Probably just, I think, just any more perspective from a GI or ENT, I think would be very good to add in. Anything else that you guys want to add about your overall experience, about maybe when I first pitched it to to now, if anything's changed or gotten better or worse, <laughs> anything at all? Because <laughs> I'm sure the audience, SLPs, would just love to hear anything from GI and ENT. You want to start off? I had a point here about research uh, on the topic, so I, maybe I'll just touch base on that really quickly. Uh, I, I just think that uh, having the multidisciplinary group like this really uh, presents an opportunity to to do research and and figure out uh, meaningfully uh, how to do this properly. So not only should we do this and do it intuitively and well, but try to study it because we really don't know enough about how this group uh, diagnoses and treats conditions uh, differently. There is no like sort of uh, standard model of care here. And so it'd be interesting to study and figure out, you know, which patients do benefit the most, uh, involve them in that, you know, understand how we can most help uh, to improve their quality of life uh, and see which conditions uh, we really move the needle because we presume that all these patients will benefit, uh, but we should always be studying and iterating and, and trying to figure out. Uh, and, and I think this represents an opportunity to create an actual collaborative model of care that others can follow. So for this condition, maybe instead of creating just a GI-based algorithm where we just go through the reflux testing, maybe we need to include ENT testing, which just is not being done, or, or, or SLP evaluation, which again is not part of these standard algorithms. So not only should we be working together uh, and learning how to interact with each other and learning from each other, but I think the the greater sort of medical community, our societies would benefit from incorporating this model into actual processes of care through research. And I would say one of the things that would be more difficult to actually study too is the impact it has on the rest of your practice. So not just on the outcomes of the patients that you're seeing in the multidisciplinary dysphagia clinic, but obviously working with, as an, as a laryngologist, working with a speech pathologist closely, working with an esophagologist closely, is going to teach me other things that will then be transferred over to my other patients that I'm not seeing in this specific clinic. Um, so I'd say that's one of the, the best things for me isn't just helping out patients, which we're doing here all the time, but also just expanding my knowledge base and, and doing so in a way that I wouldn't normally have access to. I also think in this, in this medical world where we're always sort of increasing our stress and there's a lot of issues with burnout, I think there's, there's sufficient data to suggest that doing meaningful work is one way to combat mm -hmm. burnout and that multidisciplinary work is, is almost by definition meaningful work. So good point. I love that one. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think it's just so fascinating, obviously coming out of COVID too, where the whole world is flipped upside down. But I just think of some patients that I saw that would take like eight months to get into ENT take nine months to get into GI. And, and and I would love to obviously study, you know, the outcomes of those patients that have to wait that long to see the respective silos versus being able to see the team all at once. And, and I think, yeah, I, I love what you just said. So thank you. And, and you know, with, with the what you just described, I mean, the wrong intervention can be implemented at the wrong time. You know, there might be a better sequence of, of treatment planning, you know, but, before I start doing intensive swallowing rehabilitation, I need Will to dilate this giant stricture first or else we're working against a trap door, right? And, um, you know, I would need 
Alon to to comment and give me his input on the patient's GERD status before doing something else up higher with the upper esophageal sphincter. Um, you know, it's just it's so important to know who your team players are, who the key players are in your community, and and touching base with them. And even when you don't have anybody close by reaching out and just letting them know like, Hey, I have a vested interest in swallowing. I have a lot of swallowing impairment patients. Are you interested in collaborating? You know, just take a shot, do a cold call, just get in touch with them and see what you can do because there are ways of getting a multidisciplinary discussion going in your community. If you don't have the luxury of working side by side with them. Yeah, also to, to one of the points that Will said earlier, there are, of course, straightforward cases where it's very ENT, we can fix the problem and they have symptom relief, send them on their way. Same with GI. But in a lot of these complex cases, you know, there's so much interplay. And I like to talk about the interplay because in these complex chronic cases, oropharyngeal problems over time can have an impact on the esophagus and same thing. Esophageal problems chronically can have a problem on the oropharynx and there's upstream interplay and there's downstream interplay. And, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be chronic. Um, it could be the fact that they swallow so many times to clear their pharynx. It's going to induce esophageal dysmotility because you're stopping the peristaltic cleaning wave, right? Um, so what we do up here affects down here and what's going on down here affects up here. So looking at the whole continuum and engaging all the key players and specialists is really key. Awesome. Thank you so much. Any final thoughts from anybody? This has been an awesome conversation. This is People are going to love this. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad. Good. My pleasure. For everybody making the time to be here and we appreciate it so much. And yeah, any, any final thoughts from anybody? Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. This is really fun. Mine is no, there's no I in team. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) No, no, it just, and you know, really thank you to Alan Will for coming on with me and being very supportive of all of my dreams and visions since coming here to Mayo Clinic and they're very good friends. So I'm very blessed. And Teresa, thank you so much too, for, for having us and for asking me to come on this podcast and, and, and loving this idea. I'm, I'm so glad to be able to talk about multidisciplinary dysphagia care. I could talk about it all day long, but I'm sure we all want to go home and see our families. So thank you. Awesome. All right. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.